Welcome to the latest edition of Changing Waters, a podcast produced by the Global Ocean Health Program at the National Fisheries Conservation Center in partnership with the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm Brad Warren, Executive Director of NFCC. Today, we hear from Dr. Margaret Leinen, the director of Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. An award-winning oceanographer, Dr. Leinen has also cultivated a far-reaching view of the key challenges and advances in marine science today. These days, that increasingly means understanding the consequences of carbon emissions on the ocean and sorting out options for for tackling this problem. At more than 40 billion tons a year, carbon dioxide is the largest waste stream in human history, and the ocean absorbs about 90% of the heat and a bit more than a quarter annually of the CO2 emitted from this immense stream of greenhouse gas from our tailpipes and smokestacks. Dr. Leinen visited our hometown of Seattle for the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and she agreed to meet for an interview at her hotel. I'm going to start with something I hadn't planned. Tell me how you learned to talk so clearly about science in the ocean. Oh, I don't know that I learned to talk clearly about science in the ocean, but uh, when I was in high school, uh, I decided that one of the ways that I could see a lot of colleges was if I joined the debate team because the high school science competitions were at different colleges and universities around Illinois, where I went to high school. And I think that that really helped me understand uh, you know, how, how to speak a little more clearly uh, to make arguments a little more clearly. Mm-hmm. That's probably the start, and then I think the rest is just a number of years. Of, You've just had a little practice. I've had a little practice. <laughs> that makes sense. I want you to tell me about coupled ocean climate research that's going on and how Scripps is playing a role in defining the toolkit for that. Yes, I think that we are in the midst of something that is quite a revolution in the way we look at the ocean and the way we study it, and the way we collect information from it. And that revolution has to do with uh, sensors, instruments, and systems that are different than the ones that we were using 20 years ago. Uh, For example, um, think about the ocean with 4,000 vehicles, platforms, in it, uh, each of which uh, is about um, is a tube about five feet high, and in that tube are instruments that measure the temperature, the salinity, the depth, uh, and the position of the the float, and a wonderful ballasting mechanism that allows the float to sink in the water to two thousand meters, a little over six thousand feet, then float in the depths of the ocean for about five or six days and then come up very rapidly. And when it comes up, it's measuring all of those things all the way to the surface. It gets to the surface, it sends all of that information back to Scripps Oceanography by satellite, and then it sinks again. So every five or six days, we're having a full profile of the ocean, Mm -hmm. the upper part Mm -hmm. of the ocean. So in terms of climate, what this means and ocean change, you can see 
the world's largest heat sink working. You can see the world's largest carbon sink working. You can measure these things. Yes, we can measure the heat sink. Uh, remember, I didn't say that this had any sensors for pH or acidity. Uh, not yet, uh, but, but we're you've certainly got proxies to infer some of that. So, yes. Uh, yeah. So this has given us a really in-depth look at the ocean. Uh, before this, we would take profiles on ships, which are very expensive to run, and at any one time there might be 25 or 30 oceanographic ships somewhere in the ocean. Uh, and, that, and, you know, on each day we'd have maybe one or two measurements. So now you'd have, have a, a, a few scrappy little snapshots here and there in right. spots in the ocean at a few times. <clears throat> and it's costly as all get out to get because you've got to pay ship time. And now you've got these buoys that are probably a fraction of the cost per mm -hmm. unit of That's measurement. Right. Yeah. And, and they're continuous. And they're continuous. Yeah. So that has given us this really sharp picture of the upper part of the ocean. And now, well, while we knew before this that um, the ocean was the heat sink and that over 90% of the warming that has taken place as a result of greenhouse gases and other greenhouse active compounds is in the ocean. We didn't know exactly where mm -hmm. or whether there were areas that were cooling down as well mm -hmm. as heating up and what processes were taking place. And now it's, you know, as though we took off uh, a set of blinders that kept us from understanding that. It's really important because the ocean is the, the flywheel of climate. It's the... Mm -hmm. the element of the planet that controls the uptake of heat, giving off of heat, it controls precipitation, uh, just so much of what we think of as the integration of weather, mm -hmm. climate, uh, comes from the ocean. Right. Uh, not least the way that it modulates temperature <laughs> with storms. Uh. Yes. And so when you evaporate water into the atmosphere, uh, you can think of that as stored heat in the atmosphere because it's taken heat to evaporate it. And when you move it someplace else and it rains, it gives off heat. Mm -hmm. So this is a way to move heat around the planet, and that's a major function of the ocean. Would we know this if we didn't have the Argo system with all those thousands of floats? We would know that the ocean was taking up most of the heat, mm -hmm. but we wouldn't know exactly where, and we wouldn't know whether there were areas that were cooling as well as heating. Um, and we wouldn't understand it in a 3D sense, you know, the, the details of it. And those are important because they, they are the thing that the, the, the uh, uh, detailed look is what makes the difference between um, the weather here in Seattle versus San Diego or the weather uh, with the monsoon in India or the weather with hurricanes in the Atlantic. And so looking at the interaction between the ocean and those big 
weather systems, which integrated with time or climate, uh, is the, the, the big revelation. Yeah. The other thing I like about this, although I don't know how it applies in this particular case, is that we've noticed that really high resolution data, startlingly high, is what you need to find the handholds if you're going to engage in adaptation, remediation, mm. uh, localized mitigation of carbon pollution and so on. These things require a very high resolution data set. Um, it, it, it's just what it takes to see what you're dealing with. Where's the handhold? Where's the lever? You're exactly right. Uh, it's one thing to know that uh, the planet is having its warmest year or the January is the warmest January, but if you don't know what's going on in your area and how that is going to evolve with climate change, you have no idea what you're going to adapt to. Yeah, and how uh, you're going to adapt, uh, yeah. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical firsthand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make coastal transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Um, in terms of ocean health research, uh, I know that Scripps, through Todd Martz's work and others through Andrew Dixon's work, has been, I mean, I've sometimes joked that Andrew's lab is the, is, is, is Rome to the world's church of carbonate chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you know it, it, they set the standard. Uh, everybody else takes Andrew's advice. I mean, it, it, if, um, uh, if you look forward at where we're going from here, I mean, you've built the tools with which we know what's changing in the ocean. You're one of maybe two or three institutions that can take that credit. What's next? Well, the next thing is getting lots of those sensors for the carbon system in the ocean deployed out there in the ocean so we can tell... It's, it's, as you put it, uh, we can get handholds on what ocean health is, ocean acidification in our own neighborhood. What are the hot spots for this? Uh, and what is controlling that variability across the ocean? Uh, here in the Pacific Northwest, 
uh, you were the first to see big impacts of ocean acidification on your oyster industry and so on, on shellfish. Uh, now lots of places, knowing that they how to look for it, are starting to see the impact locally. Uh, but we need to understand that around the ocean, especially as we think about adapting to this in the future, uh, to understand uh, how our, our fisheries, how our marine protected areas, uh, how the areas um, that, we, um, uh, that we count on for ecosystems and ecosystem services are responding to CO2 in the ocean. So how they're, how they're acidifying or how they're changing. Yeah. You made the other day a, a kind of a startling and beautiful statement that um, in the year 2100, people will not be worried about CO2. How will we get there and what will be the ocean's role in that? Uh, I really believe that, that it's not that we, we may still have some CO2 issues in 2100, but I think that we will have developed um, tools, um, systems, pra business practices, uh, other kinds of practices that we know are working. And so what we'll be doing is um, monitoring the fact that we're continuing with those activities and monitoring the, the, uh, uh, the surety that we have around uh, maintaining CO2 at a level that we can accept. The reason that I think this is that uh, I am a firm believer in all kinds of technological development. I think some of the technological development will help us toward looking at renewables in ways that we're only beginning to do now. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, I do think that governments will realize that they're going to have to do something on the policy side. Uh, in the US, uh, it is everybody's second political issue, mm -hmm. after, and there may be three or four first ones, but climate is right up there. That's a huge change mm -hmm. from 10 years ago. And eventually, uh, uh, business and government will have to respond to that. And third is, I, I, you know, I think that we're likely to see not just one, but several wild cards that we didn't anticipate, um, whether that's ways of, of essentially reusing carbon emissions, mm -hmm. capturing the carbon, um, turning it into methane and using it for power, so we're essentially recycling mm -hmm. uh, energy, or whether it's um, things that we would do with the, the carbon that we take out of the atmosphere, new places that we would put it, or new products that we would make with it. I think there's a lot of innovation around that too. Right. And I think the, the, you know, and it's not just the US, every, every country that has uh, technological capability is innovating like crazy around this, and that will eventually pay off. So you see a very big role 
in line with what we're hearing from IPCC and the National Academies for carbon dioxide removal. Am I right in that? Um, it sounds like that's the foundation of what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think um, both carbon dioxide capture mm -hmm. uh, so that it's never emitted, uh, but I do think that there'll be a role for CO2 removal because CO2 has such a long residence time in the atmosphere. It's, you know, hundreds of years. And so that means that even if we never put another molecule of CO2 into the atmosphere after today, uh, we would still be li living with this um, huge dose of yeah. CO2 that we already put in. And that will continue to warm. We're not at equilibrium with what's in the atmosphere yet. The weather and climate system are still reacting to that CO2. And, uh, and I think that will push us in the direction of saying we've got to remove. Mm -hmm. Which is already happening in small ways now. In small ways, Perhaps. yes. Oh. When I look at that field and I look at the projections from IPCC, which is suggesting that we could see 10, 20 or more billion tons a year removed from the atmosphere and put somewhere, that somewhere gets interesting, particularly for somebody interested in the ocean, because that's where nature normally puts most of it and where people are likely, we think, to put most of it when they figure out how. And I want you to talk a bit about um, the pluses and minuses and the, uh, the, the, the kinds of options that are being looked at in that? Well, uh, the, the oceans are uh, a huge repository for CO2. They're taking up um, between a 25 and 30% of the CO2 that we put in the atmosphere. So that's- On an annual basis, that's, that's annual, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that, they're already a big carbon sink. Uh, and what you're talking about would be to say we can use them in a bigger way. The, the challenges of that are understanding uh, where in the ocean you would put it, uh, whether you're talking about uh, putting concentrated CO2 somewhere, mm -hmm. or whether you're talking about just uh, uh, putting it in um, in the ocean in general, which is more difficult because that's, uh, you know, that's distributed. And it's labile. Yes. <laughs> it's not so easy to make it hold still. And, you know, we, we have been so reluctant to do research on this topic because people don't like the idea. They don't, you know, it's, it's bad enough that we're uh, doing this huge experiment with CO2 in the atmosphere. Now we want to, you know, are you telling me you want to do an equivalent, uh, enormous experiment with the ocean? You know, you must be crazy. Uh, and that has really served as a barrier to research to understand uh, what's happening. I mean, we might, uh, we might do research on this and say it would be a terrible idea. Uh, then at least we know mm -hmm. for sure. There are other options as well. Um, for example, um, the you know weathering of rocks, minerals in the rocks and rocks um, takes up CO two. On geologic time scales, uh, that's been a major uh, 
part of the geochemical evolution yes, of the planet. Yes, and I wanted to ask you about accelerated weathering strategies, because those are getting right. more attention these days. Yes, they are. And, they're, and people are looking at them in lots of ways. Uh, one would be um, essentially grinding up rocks that have high weathering potential, uh, and then um, using maybe using some artificial tools like uh, speeding the reaction through uh, heat or catalysts or whatever. Electrolysis. Yeah. Um, others have said, well, let's do something creative with this. Um, let let's. Uh, we know that there are things that you can do with minerals in soil that increase the root mass and the roots of plants are a very very important uh, storage area for co2 uh, so in in temperate areas you know during the winter you lose all of the leaves but the roots are still there and they're still storing all that co2 so what if you could you know, increase the root mass by 25 or 30 uh, percent. That would—that's if you do that over huge areas, that's a lot of CO2 capture. So that might be mediated by um, by using um, minerals or, or rocks. The uh, minerals make up rocks um, in creative ways. So that's another technique. It's not an ocean technique. Uh, but it's one that capitalizes on natural processes. And it will matter for the ocean, because everything we do that manages that enormous waste stream is going to manage for the ocean. Right. It's going to matter for the ocean. I want you to tell me, in, in closing, because we're, we're right at the end of your time, what gives you the most hope, looking at our situation right now? My biggest uh, source of optimism uh, is young people. Uh, if you look at the, the, uh, all of the opinion polls uh, that have been done about, around uh, climate and climate change, uh, by far the demographic that is most concerned and most anxious that we take action, whether that action is research, uh, mitigation, adaptation, etc., is, uh, is people under 30. It's their world. Well said. Thank you. Dr. Leinen, Director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And I thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks, Brett. <laughs>